This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today I have really the distinct honor of being joined by an icon of improv comedy in this country and actually all over the world, the one and only Colin Mockery. Before we meet Colin, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Colin Mockery is probably best known as one of the stars of Whose Line Is It Anyway, which just completed its 20th and final season in March of 2023, making Whose Line one of the longest-running comedy shows on television. Colin is currently touring the country with his two acclaimed shows, Scared Scriptless, great title, with Brad Sherwood, which has been going strong for nearly 25 years, making it the longest-running improv tour show in history. Colin and Brad even had the honor of headlining at the White House Correspondence Dinner, that's heady stuff, and then there is Hyprov, Improv Under Hypnosis, fascinating, with master hypnotist Assad, which also travels the country after completing a successful off-Broadway run. Colin has built a massive following, co-starring on the series Whose Line Is It Anyway with co-stars Wayne Brady and Ryan Stiles, along with host Asia Tyler. Together, they've entertained generations of fans for two decades with their hilarious banter while playing incredible spontaneous improv games. Colin was a regular for nine years, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, on the British version of Whose Line Is It Anyway? And Colin also finds time to reprise his role as private investigator Ralph Fellows in the Canadian mystery crime drama The Murdoch Mysteries, which airs on the Ovation Channel in the U.S., Other notable appearances include Amazon's LOL, Last One Laughing Canada, where Colin took home first prize in the competitive series and a cameo role in the Kids in the Hall special, which also airs on Amazon. Previously, Colin's co-starred in CBC's TV music, A Christmas Letter, the theatrical film Boys vs. Girls opposite Kevin MacDonald, and was featured in the documentary Act Social about the healing potential of applied improvisation. Last year, Colin received a Canadian Screen Award nomination for Best Lead Performance for his role in the webcast Mass Hysterical, a Comedic Cantata. Colin also co-authored, and I have it right here, this fabulous book, Not Quite the Classic, that was published by Viking Books, where he takes the first and last lines of familiar classics and reimagines everything in between, hard to do in print, taking the reader in bizarre and hilarious new directions. In 2018, Colin was honoured alongside comedian Andrea Martin as the inaugural recipients of Canada's John Candy Award for Excellence in Comedy. An alumnus of Toronto's famous Second City Troupe and lifelong resident of Canada, he and his wife, actress and comedian Deborah McGrath, also enjoy performing their own improv shows throughout Canada. They're also the very proud parents of their daughter, Kinley, who is transgender, and they have become generous supporters of the Welcome Friend Association's Rainbow Camp, which provides for LGBTQ plus teens. Colin Mockery, what a delight to have you here. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. I'm really tired now. I can <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) Longest intro ever in the history, right? (laughs) I can't help it. It's hard to know truly where to begin with someone like you, Colin, who has accomplished so much over the course of your career. But I guess it's always great to start at the very beginning. And you were born in Kilmarnock, Scotland. You emigrated to Canada when you were only six years old. And you moved to a neighborhood just outside of Montreal, which is my hometown, in 1964. Later, you settled in Vancouver in 1969. So you must have been the new kid on the block a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Was humor something that came naturally to you as a kid? And was it something that made some of those big life transitions a bit easier for you? Yes, I think I was always blessed with seeing the humor in certain situations. Because I was also very shy, I didn't really use my humor, (laughs) except, you know, with my close friends. But I never, I I did when I I, I was performing, you know, in drama school or during theater class, that's where I would sort of blossom. And then I'd go back to my Clark Kent persona, where I'd be very (laughs) studious and quiet. (sighs) A lot of people don't realize that, that in addition to the improv comedy, you actually went to theater school in Vancouver. And I write about this, and the name of this was the Vancouver Studio 58, Langara's College Professional Theater Program, where you received your professional debut at Vancouver Theater Sports League. Did you know as a child that you wanted to be an actor? No, I started, I mean, I was always a big movie buff from a a young age. I loved Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And then, you know, when I was growing up, I felt it was almost a golden age of of television with the Dick Van Dyke show and Jack Benny and the Andy Griffith show and all these amazing shows, which I really enjoyed, but I never thought, oh, I want to do that. It wasn't until I was actually, my plan was to become a marine biologist (laughs) and I think mainly because of the show Flipper. Oh, I loved Flipper. As opposed to any deep-seated love of science. So I, and as I mentioned before, I was very quiet. My One of my best friends dared me to try out for the school play. So I did, and I got it. And then when I got my first laugh, I still remember that moment as a life changer. It was like, oh, this is what I now want forever. Yes. So immediately... Bye-bye, science. (laughs) Hello, theater arts. The play was The Death and Life of Sneaky Fitch. Classic. And you landed the role of The Undertaker. And you got that, like, just that moment of being on stage. What was that like? Like, I have an uncle who always says, ask your guests to describe that moment when they kind of knew that this was going to be their calling. Well, I mean, it's all, every word you think of to describe it is cliché. But I felt it was a feeling I'd never felt in my life. It was a feeling of power where I made an entire group of people do something I wanted them to do. Mostly unconsciously, because I really didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) But still, I got everyone's humor is so personal. And to get people to laugh at the same thing, it really was an amazing, powerful moment. And I felt at ease on the stage in a way that I never felt in life. So everything just seemed to connect at the same time. And I think it worked out for everyone. There's such a dichotomy in that you always were a shy kid, and yet you've made a living as really a master of improv and as an actor and a writer and many other things. But it's so fascinating to me. And I actually, before this interview, so I've been married for 28 years almost to my husband, who's a fertility doctor, Dr. Liebrecht. Clifford. But before that, 35 years ago, I was married to Simon Rakoff, a comedian, 
who I know you oh, know. Almost, Simon. <laughs> yes. And he said some unbelievable things about, you know, I've got to find this, but oh, he went geez. on and on about really just what a fine human being you are. But in addition to that, he talked about what makes you such a great artist and such a great improv person. And what he said is, Colin is such a brilliant improviser because he's not afraid to appear foolish and to step out on that limb and let it break. He's also an incredibly nice guy. So I guess the question is, how would you describe your comedy and how you're not nervous as a shy person, how you can flip, like Flipper, my favorite show on Saturday night, by the way, when I was growing up, and be totally, really unflappable. I think it's a word that you've even used about yourself. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm sure therapy is in order to find out all the reasons. Uh, <laughs> when Deb sees the guy on whose line, she calls him the other because it's so unlike what I am at home. And thankfully, that's probably why we've lasted so long, because that's a guy you would not want to be married to. <laughs> I think part of it is when I'm on stage improvising, I'm usually with people I trust and know very well. And I know we're going to be working together in the, for the same goal. I know what my skills are and what I bring to it. And I feel confident in that. And again, these are all things I don't have in real life. I'm with people I trust. I know what I'm doing. And I, I have this optimism, incredible optimism, which I don't have in real life, that everything is going to work out beautifully. Yes. What a wonderful thing to have that somewhere in your life, whether it's in your work life or in your personal life, just to have that feeling. I know you've described that at a dinner party with Deb, it would be a big thing for you to say one sentence all night. It's been described of you that you could go through a whole evening, even though you might cook all the food and you're the amazing oh. chef and yeah. even more so during the pandemic. Is that what happened to you that, by the way, about the cooking that that became really a thing during the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it became a thing. It, it started when we were in Los Angeles. We'd moved down there because Deb and her writing partner, Linda Cash, had devised the show that was being produced down there. So we moved down there. Deb was seven months pregnant and I couldn't work because I didn't have any papers. And so I was getting kind of bored. And I said to her, hey, this cooking thing, do you just like look at the recipes and do it? And she went, yeah, yeah, that's all you do. She hated cooking. And I I loved it. It became something that I found relaxing. I, you know, I get up and looking through cookbooks and websites and then I, I do the shopping. And then during just before COVID happened, uh, Deb developed all these food sensitivities. So, and all the things she loves, like onion and garlic and broccoli, mm. apples, she can't have anymore. So that was a challenge to come up with something that we could both have that still tasted like food. <laughs> and so, yeah, so cooking has been a nice little hobby and it's a, it's a relaxation for me. I love doing it. I know it's not happening yet, but Christmas is coming up and I hear yep. that your Christmas dinners are legendary. I, oh. I, I, I love that holiday. And so... I just wonder, what is it about your Christmas dinner that distinguishes it from all the rest? Just it's made with immense love. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice yeah. brown sugar, uh, <laughs> spice, rubbed turkey. Yeah. Now there's two different kinds of stuffing, one gluten, one non-gluten. <laughs> there's yams and mashed potatoes and mm. carrots, and it just goes on forever. Mm. Lovely, lovely. These are the things that get us through many, many other things. So 
after Studio 58, which was where you studied theater mm-hmm. in Vancouver and you started in Montreal, so you've lived all across the country of Canada, which is also so cool. You started working for Vancouver Theater Sports League. That's where you met fellow improviser and future collaborator Ryan Stiles. And then in 86, you moved to Toronto, 1986, you moved to Toronto, where Stiles was already working at Second City and you soon joined the touring company where you met the love of your life. At the time, director Deborah McGrath, who's an actress and a comedian as well. And you two were shortly married after in 1989. Can you tell us a little bit about, before you talk about meeting her, but just about that same time at Second City Touring Company? Like that, that, those are pretty cool days. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think Dan Aykroyd called Second City like comedy college. And it's true. You really learn to hone your craft there. For me, what was great about it was improvised after every show. So you kept that muscle going. Then you had these incredible sketches written by people throughout the years, like Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Martin Short. And also you got a chance to work on the things that you weren't strong at. For me, I never felt at ease talking straight to the audience as myself. So I would say during the improv set, I said, you know, if anyone needs time, before their scene, you know, to get ready, I will go out and, you know, set up the scene. And so there I learned how to save my butt <laughs> as myself <laughs> talking to the audience and being able to relax enough to converse and improvise, improvise with people. So it was, it was a great learning experience. God is so cool. And then you met the love of your life while it's doing this. And how great mm-hmm. is that? And and you've been married for a million years, which in Hollywood would be equivalent to like 85 years. So yeah. tell us about the romance and what happened and how you knew, because you've even said that if you were stuck on a desert island, the one person you'd like to be stuck with, you, you don't say some famous author, or whatever, you say Deborah McGrath. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was the making of me in, in many ways. I auditioned and I have to say, uh, I just want to give a special shout out to Ryan Stiles, who has led me to um, amazing places and people. He was the one who sort of got me the audition at Second City. And then through that, I auditioned for Deb. She, You start off with like 30 people, then they willow it down to 12, and then there was four. And so we auditioned, and then at the end, she came up and said, well, it was between you and the cute guy, and you got <laughs> Got it. I may mention that to her every once in a while, just a reminder. Um, And then it was, I mean, there were difficulties in a way in that she was married. And this will shock you. I was never amazing with women, let's say. (laughs) I was always like the good friend. I was the confidant and I loved women and actually felt more relaxed with them than I did with men. So I was shocked when things took the turn that they did. And uh, and her ex-husband, Dana Anderson, great improviser and a good friend of ours. We uh, see him all the time. He lives in Edmonton where he works all the time. We see him whenever we get out there. So we started off married. That was nice. Then about six months in, she said, and in all seriousness, and I think this is when I really fell in love with her deeply. She said, I thought you'd be easier to change. <laughs> And I said, I'll get there. I just go at my own sort of speed. And from the time we got married to now, just almost a completely different person in many ways. And most of that was just being a good partner, doing things like from picking up your clothes and, you know, helping clean, not have, well, your job is to do this. Your job Mm -hmm. is to do this. So, yeah. And she's one of those people, if there's a problem, 
I tend to let things fester. <laughs> she goes, no, let's talk about this and get, and certainly she, I think, is the reason for the success of our marriage. She wow. is, uh, I can't say enough nice. And she's funny and sexy and um, all that stuff. How long have you been married for, Colin? 34 years. That's pretty impressive to be able to say all that stuff. By the way, the fact that you're friends with the ex, Cliff, my husband, always says, I love my ex-husband, Simon. <laughs> so like, he thinks of yeah. this as ex-husband. Why not? Well, Why of course, there's a reason that you got together. And maybe, you know, I, I certainly have ex-girlfriends. It just didn't work out in that particular area, but everything else was great. Totally. That's, that's so incredible. So after living in Toronto, you move to LA and you mm. land a spot in the British TV show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And that must have been a real trip for you. First for a single episode, you were promoted to coming a regular player the next year. You ended up staying on the show for seven seasons. It didn't look like it was going to happen that way at the beginning. So it was pretty exciting. And then the British version of the show ended in 1998. How would you describe, first of all, getting that gig? Like, that's huge. It wasn't, at that point, it was just a gig. Because it wasn't being shown, I think it was shown on what was then called the Ha Network, which turned into the Comedy Network in the States later. So it was a thing that college students kind of knew about. And I'd only known because I'd auditioned for it at Second City in Canada, didn't get it. And it wasn't until we moved down to uh, LA that I got it. And my first show, I um, quite frankly, uh, sucked because I psyched myself out. I thought, Oh yeah, we all speak the same language, but will they get my references? I mean, it was, and because of that, I didn't do anything. I didn't push myself. I just, so I thought, well, that's it. This little show that no one, anyway, nobody knows in North America anyway. And it, once again, uh, Ryan Stiles came through for me. They decided because it was so big in the college circuit to shoot some shows in New York. And Ryan said, you know, give Colin another chance. And they put me with Ryan, which was a bonus because we'd worked together forever. And the same thing happened to the Brits. They felt, oh, well, the American audience. Under so they were a little tentative. So it gave me a chance to, I guess, blossom. I was working with Ryan, which meant I was much more comfortable. I was in, on home turf. And from then, although every year, it, <laughs> every year they would say, okay, uh, we're going to give you two shows this year. And then oh, I'd end gosh. up doing the entire season. But then the next year, I'd go back. We're going to give you three shows this year. Oh. And then I would do the whole season. And it really wasn't until, I think, the last season where they said, yeah, you're doing all of them. So wow, 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 wow. I'm, I'm, I'm slow but steady. That's so good. Well, it almost keeps you on your ballerina toe shoes, right? When oh, you yeah, don't you know, never get... Right? You're, yeah. you're hungry and you're eager and you're going for it. And it's, it's, it's a good thing. Shortly thereafter, you were cast in The American Whose Line Is It Anyway with Drew Carey. And... Not all British shows do well when they're transferred to an American model, but this was a huge exception. Was there a dramatic difference between the British improv humor and the American improv humor? And what do you attribute to the 20-year, really very, very long-term success of the show? Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the main difference was it was all the same production staff, the same producers, most of the same, except for the British people, most of the same cast. The only difference was there was no censorship in Britain. So we would, things would do unspeakable things to the queen. It was fine <laughs> language. Uh, and then when we came over to the US, it was different. And, you know, usually once a script is written, it's sent to the censor so they can look through it and go, no, no, you can't do this. Well, we didn't have a script. So the censor was in the control booth. And our very first show 
there was a scene where I was in love with Greg Proops, I think, and I, I kissed him at the end. And then this voice came out of nowhere and said, can you make something else up? <laughs> and I mean, in the previous scene, I think I'd killed three women and thrown them out a window. That was fine. <laughs> but kissing a man. <laughs> oh, goodness. And that Drew Carey, the host at that point, had a real thing about censorship. It just infuriated him. So the next 20 minutes of the show was unbroadcastable because he would <laughs> introduce the games using words you can't use on television. Oh, so the producer and the censor had a meeting and they decided we would shoot the show. And then afterwards, they would discuss what would go in and what wouldn't. And it was all, I mean, it was difficult because in Britain, it was not something that was in the forefront of our minds. Mm -hmm. And because we really weren't sure where the line was, there were some things that I thought, well, that'll never get on. Hmm. It was fine. And then some things totally innocent. Benign. That were for, yeah. Wow. So, you know, at some point you just decide, you know what, I'm just going to do my show and hopefully it's going to be it's ending up on television. In your book, Not Quite the Classics, and I'm just showing it here in case part of this goes on video, and, and the book is great, by the way, you mentioned that all the cast members were good friends, so no Hollywood gossip there. Do you think part of the magic of Whose Line Is It Anyway is that you all just got along so well, like that comfort that you were talking about with Ryan? It really was sort of a magical gathering, a perfect storm of the people that were there, all lovely, all very supportive of each other. And yeah, the fact that we're still going, wow. well, 20 years with the American, but over 30 with the British. We had a 30th anniversary in Britain where we did live shows at Royal Albert Hall, which was, which was weird. It's like, um, are you sure they've got the right people? You know, you're back and there's you know pictures of Sinatra and uh, Elvis and us. So, but I think part of the longevity was because people, what I love about the show is everyone on the show has their own fan club. Everybody loves different aspects of each performer. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of the reason that it became popular was the cast. Also because it's so unpredictable. You know, when you're watching a sitcom, sometimes it gets into a mathematical formula where it's da 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 da, -da joke. Yes. <laughs> and, and whose line it doesn't. It's just all over the place. Yes. And I think they can, there is that thing where people, the audience can see we're enjoying each other and we, we really like each other. And I think that makes it a relaxing show in a way to watch. So uh, that's the thing I think I was most proud of about the show, that it was a show the family could watch. And it, it started this whole improv wave where schools you know, high schools, elementary schools, colleges were starting improv troops and getting people involved in making up stuff. Absolutely. Was there a celebrity? Because you had some very cool people. Were you ever starstruck by any of the guests? Who impressed or surprised you the most on the show? Well, I mean, there were two guests. Well, I mean, we've had a lot of great guests, but the ones who stand out for me was Robin Williams because oh he inspired all of us. And when he was on the show everybody's energy went up 150%. And he was not disappointing in any way. He was a lovely man, one of those people, he knows the crew's names within minutes. He was an Oscar winner and he was playing with us. So it was uh. mind boggling. And the next person was uh, Sid Caesar, who again was someone who I, I loved growing up. And he was, maybe it was his 80th birthday or something. He was quite frail physically, but so sharp wow. mentally. And it was just a thrill to be able to work with him. 
Oh my goodness. This is such exciting stuff, honestly, to hear about this and, and you lived it. And, and just to hear about yeah. what, like, I don't know if you've ever written a book about these people that you worked with, all of these celebrities and greats and inspirations, and that would be maybe your next. I was basically forced to write the other book. I'm really <laughs> lazy. Part of the reason I improvise is so I don't have to learn anything. I don't have to put any effort into anything. <laughs> I love when you talk about the writing of the book. Actually, I want to get into the book because I just want to share. I even love your testimonials on the back of the book where you talk about, of course, Carol Brady, a.k.a. Florence Henderson, who writes, I adore Colin Mockery. I think he's brilliant, so talented, and a dear, sweet man. Also, he's funny as hell and a good kisser. How does she know that you're a good kisser? Um, I kiss her <laughs> on uh, Who's Line. Um, we had a nice a nice kiss. <laughs> it was, it's so odd to you know, be you know, necking with someone that you kind of grew up with as one of TV's lovely mothers. Carol, so I know. Yeah. Carol, what's going on? Yeah. Oh, awesome. We're going to go on a short commercial break and hear more about Colin's fabulous book, Not Quite the Classics, when we come back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We're back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, and I'm here with Colin Mockery. Colin, I love when you say in the book that you never chose this profession because, and I just want to quote this because it's wonderful. One of the reasons I became an improviser was so that my workload would be light. I don't have to learn lines or go to wardrobe fittings. I don't have to travel with equipment or an entourage, mainly because no one wants to do things for me. I, <laughs> I just need a stage and someone to work with and off I go. Simple, easy, no heavy lifting. The best thing about writing is that I am sitting down while I do it. The worst, and I cannot stress this enough, is that it is work. And I was just wondering, like, sitting down to write this book, you know, David Rakoff, who was also the, the late, great David Rakoff, who's mm -hmm. a great writer, said, and I have the quote somewhere here. It's a little bit racy, this quote. I don't even know if I can say it, but he has this quote about writing. And he says, and I quote, writing was always difficult. Writing is like pulling teeth from my blank. Well, well, I can go a couple of places with your blank. But, uh, <laughs> well, it was like match game all of a sudden. <laughs> was it because I'm thinking, how did you get the comedy into the book? It's one thing to stand on stage and do what you do best, be a master at improv comedy and just go for it. But what was that like to yeah. put it in words? Was it painstaking or fun? It uh, No, it was not fun. <laughs> I will go right to that. It was not fun. And I mean, also, as an improviser, uh, certainly when I was younger, I was very physical, and that part was taken away from me. Yes. So the, the concept of, of the book, I take the first and last line of famous classic novels and then make up the middle. And 
most of the hard work w was finding novels that had a first and last line that was something I could use. Yes. Some of them had great first, some of them had great last. Yes. It was so hard. And my first story was the Sherlock Holmes story. And it just flowed. It was like so easy. It just, and I'm not a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I don't, you know, like he, he's not like someone that I was <laughs> knew everything about, but there was just something about that character where I immediately glommed onto and I, I finished it. And I thought, Oh, well, that was okay. That's pretty easy. I could easy. do this. I could do this. And that was the last easy time I had. <laughs> wow. From then on, it was just, yeah, it was pulling ass out of my blanks <laughs> every day. <laughs> Going, oh, why, why am I doing this? And, yeah. I mean, there were some, a, a couple of stories that moved along quite easily for me, but I would say 50%, not so much. Yes. There are three I'm really proud of that I think, oh, they're, they're good as, even without the gimmick, I think they'd be good stories. Improv is such a complex thing. Like, I have to be honest, I, I have a daughter who's a singer and an actor living in New York. I've tried improv. I remember doing improv with Nia Vardalis. I remember seeing Nia Vardalis at Yucks and going, you're funny. You're funnier as a waitress than a lot of the guys. <laughs> you need to do this. And of course, you know, she has. Yeah. She, yeah. And, and she's awesome, right? But improv is hard and I've tried it. What do you tell people? Like, I know you've taught it to people and I know it comes so naturally to you, but when you're teaching a class, what is the best tip you can give people out there who are dying to dive into improv? Just do it. Do it. <laughs> I mean, the hard, there's so, on paper, it really is the easiest thing in the world. Yes. The only problem is you're doing things that we don't do in real life. You have to listen to people. Yes. You have to accept their ideas. And then you, you, you build on that and build them up. And so it's a big, happy experience. And for me, when I was teaching, the hardest thing was just to get people to say yes to someone. Yes. You know, someone would give an offer and the person would go, no, you know what I think would be better? And it's like, well, you, yes. you can't do that. You have to get rid of your ego. Mm -hmm. And that was the hardest, I would say, for a, a new improviser. Yes. This show I'm doing now with Asad Meki, the hypnotist, it goes straight to that. When he hypnotizes people, the part of the brain that deals with self-reflection, self-criticism is gone. Mm -hmm. So they're not thinking, they're not uh, worried about what they're going to say. They're just reacting to everything I say. Mm -hmm. And they improvise beautifully. Every night we find like a superstar improviser. And it just reminds me of, part of me goes, why am I doing this? I'm just showing people how easy it is. <laughs> but it really is easy. And it's such a great life skill too, to be able to actually walk into a situation without a preconceived idea mm -hmm. and actually listen and hear what other people are saying and working towards some sort of resolution. It almost feels like it sounds a lot like you have to be mindful. You have to be in a place of mindfulness, like not so attached to what's just happened 10 minutes ago or what you're worried about what's about to happen tomorrow, but to be really present and not be in your head. Yeah, absolutely. You're just living in the moment and it's it's amazing and so much fun and so much oh my god i love it in scared scriptless which is the other show that you're doing so you're in your 20 you've been doing this for over 20 years doing your live improv show with brad sherwood called scared scriptless what can audiences expect from your show what what happens in that show we always say sort of like a live version of whose line without the dead weight <laughs> uh, you know wing lion <laughs> Those guys. Just you two. <laughs> just yeah. you and <laughs> it's just us. Uh, there's games that people who are fans of Who's Line will find familiar. And then there's games we've had to adapt or 
just totally make up because it's just the two of us. So we're our own Drew Carey. We're our own cast. It's more interactive even than the, the show. We have people on stage for us for about 50%, 80% of the show. Everything starts with suggestions from the audience. It's, uh, again, just a lot of, lot of fun. So you ask the audience for improv suggestions, and I know the show is very family-friendly for all ages and interactive. Do you have any tips for audience members? You have to be an educated audience member to go to your show. I understand you want them to do a little homework and come prepared with some prompts. What are the best suggestions you've had so far? We're always, uh, that's actually the most work we've, we've done on the show is try to figure out how to ask for suggestions so you're not always getting the joke ones. So you're not getting gynecologist or proctologist. Right. So we, we try to make it more personal. Like what was your great grandfather's occupation or what's the oddest occupation that one of your friends has? We've had things like my friend is the person that when you're stuck in the elevator, that's who you connect to. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Okay, we'd never get that if we just asked for an occupation. Yes. Uh, we've gotten lactation expert. Again, something <laughs> we're not really experts in, but um, give us a lot to say with. So we're, we're constantly honing and finding out ways to come up with things. So the, I would say if you come up with a, a suggestion that's interesting to you, and that helps us. If it's something jokey and weirdly, like when we get gynecologist and <laughs> proctologist, it's always when we're doing the sound effects scene. Yeah. And I think if we, there are times where I think I want the person who suggested that to come up and sit on stage. And now we're going to do a sound effect scene about a proctologist. And I want you just to gauge the audience reaction <laughs> and see what you've created here. Wow. So, so fun. What is your favorite part of performing in Scared Scriptless? And how is it just different than doing the TV show, which I suspect is stop, start and all that stuff and retakes. And Yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate with Who's Line in that we just go straight through until uh, the first two and a half hours. We just play 22 games straight. And then the last little bit, while we're doing it, the producer is cutting it into different shows because we shoot for two weekends. That's it. So we can get five shows from each taping. So then the last part of the show is Yisha uh, running down going, okay, tonight for our first game is sound effects. And then running down again, tonight our first game is... <laughs> So it's all those kind of, and that's actually where we have to work the most because we're trying to keep the audience interested in what are the dullest parts of showbiz. Uh, <laughs> what I love about Scared Scriptless is we are in control of our own destinies. If we mm -hmm. suck, it's because we're sucking. If it's, the show's great, it's because we were on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, with television, there's so many other, mm -hmm. you know, you have people editing it, you have the producers, you have the e network executives. Yes. Also, everything has to be for a television, almost like sound bites. <laughs> we can go uh, on stage. We can do scenes for 15, 20 minutes. On television, it has to be two or th yeah. three because the attention span is just not there for uh, longer things. Yeah. So I, I love that we get a chance to like truly milk the comedy cow dry <laughs> and just go as far as we can. And, um, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well. A running joke about improv is that it requires no preparation, no lines to memorize. You've written, written this. I think a lot of people underestimate how sharp you have to be, how well read you have to be, and up on the news, and just how smart you have to be to be successful in improv. Wayne Brady described that to be good at improv, and I quote, the preparation really is daily. It's whatever you read, the person you bump into, who's on the street. So every night on Whose Line Is It, 
or on your current touring show, Scared Scriptless, you're faced with the stress of having to fill, let's say, 90 minutes with something entirely unknown. So how do you prepare for that? Like, do you have a notebook by your bed? What makes a person good at doing this? And how do you prepare? Because that is a lot of material. I'm just thinking about a comedian's five minutes in stand-up. And this is like... Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just absorbing everything. For me, not that I do a lot of singing and music on the shows, but I try to keep up with, you know, what what the kids are listening to. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I have a daughter who gives us mixtapes all the time, just so it's not when somebody throws a suggestion, I go, oh, <laughs> um, and keep up with the television and everything that's happening in the world. Our show, I mean, Scare Scriptless, we say at the beginning, we're not taking any political suggestions at, the, yeah. at all because the audience divides immediately. Yes. So, uh, and our show is, our show is just goofy. I, I think for, you know, hard hitting political satire, I think that needs to be written. I think you need to have a sharp point of view mm-hmm. rather than us going, boy, Trump is stupid. It's <laughs> just not the same thing. It's not really insightful. It doesn't really add anything. Yeah. So, um, so basically all my work goes into walking on stage with absolutely nothing and feeling good with that. So it's just being relaxed, knowing that Brad and I are going to come up with a show. And even if we get a, a suggestion that we've never heard before, or it's something totally foreign to us, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter because we're using it. And because we're on stage and have your focus, mm-hmm. everything we say is true. Mm-hmm. So you may have thought that when you were giving us that current event that's happening in your town, you had one idea. No, this is the idea that's actually happening. Yes. You just reminded me of something that once happened with Lauren Michaels on SNL, where three writers out of the stable of 18 writers came in with the same comedy idea. And they were all like, you took my idea, you took my idea. And it was like, no, it's just the zeitgeist. It's what's in the air. And you've got to be aware of that zeitgeist, right? Yeah, absolutely. Are you still an avid reader? You always were. Are you still reading a lot? I I am. I I don't get into your deep, heavy books because of all the travel. So a lot of thriller, film noir, biographies. Uh, But yeah, I I do read a lot. Not as much as I did when I was a lonely young boy, bookworm. But yeah, I still keep up. And you know what? That's what happens, by the way. When you're a great, avid reader, often you can write that book. You need to be a reader before you can be a writer. Yeah. I recommend, if anyone wants to be a writer, I recommend uh, Stephen King's book on writing. It's an amazing book. And that's his main thing. If you want to write a book, you read books, read a book every day. And wow, I just got the chills when you said that. That's so awesome. What what beautiful advice. Also, what's your favorite? Oh, I can ask you, do you have a great book that you've just read recently? Before we hear about one of Colin Mockery's favorite books that he's read lately, we're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll be right back with that answer and lots more back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. 
We are back. This is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740. And I've been having an incredible conversation with Colin Mockery. And Colin, just before the break, I asked you if you could tell us about a great book that you've read lately. There's a book called uh, Father Joe. And it's written by, what's his name? Nick, mm. he he played the manager of Spinal Tap in the movie. This is Spinal Tap, wow. and he, for a while he was the editor of National Lampoon. But this talks about he had an incident when he was young, and he was sent somewhere, and he he was sent to this monastery and comes under the tutelage of this monk named Joe, Father Joe, and just this amazing man and how this relationship built and how even though at times he strayed from the path, he always came back because of the things Father Joe had taught him. And it's a really good book, fascinating book. Awesome. And what music of the youngins are you enjoying? Do you like Taylor Swift? Like who do you who do you like to listen to? I have been ta- <laughs> <laughs> I have been listening to Taylor Swift because part of it is I'm watching going, how can I apply this to my life? How can I do this where I sell out stadiums? Yes, and, and T-shirts. Um, and all Yeah, it's, uh, I, I love those people fascinate me how certain people just explode. And yes. there's sometimes I go, well, uh, yes, the, the music is great and the lyrics are great. But I think, but there's also these people who are great. And why haven't they burst? Yes. So, yes. yeah. So, yeah. Taylor Swift, Adele. Uh, who's my recent one? Oh, I, and here's the thing. Once you get to a certain age, you don't remember the names. You know, <laughs> that guy who does the song with the thing. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know, I wanted to say, we're talking about improv, and there's so many things I want to ask you about and I want to move forward. But you've also said that when you work or get out on a stage, you've written that you never feel under any pressure. You truly have nothing in your head. You just know that the audience and Brad Sherwood are going to give you plenty of material to work with. So I really wanted to ask you about this man in your life, this wonderful partner, friend, best friend. Well, I think he's like a brother to you practically. Yeah. How would you describe Brad Sherwood in the secret to your incredible work and relationship and friendship and lifetime? Yeah, I mean, he's very irritating in many ways. He's like a, he is like a younger brother. Uh, he's like always, he loves pranks. He loves just irritating. What I love about him is that he is anal and a little OCD. So things that I never think about, he's constantly, which makes our tour better because he's taking care of those things. Yes. I'm basically just there to make sure he doesn't have a stroke. <laughs> So, so far, so far, so, so far, good. So so good. He, yeah, he takes care of the little things that make our life easier. And, you know, when we get into the theater, he's the one who sort of takes care of all the sound and, and the new shy and yeah. Because I never think about it. I, I just think, oh, well, I'll just walk on stage. And then if, you know, they can see me, it'll be fine. <laughs> and, you know, we have a similar, he's younger by, hmm, I guess, a, 10, 10 years maybe but we have the same reference level we have the same we watched the same shows growing up we had the same taste the same sort of life outlook he's been married god must be what close to 20 years now hmm. to a, a lovely woman and yeah this, his relationship very important to him as mine is with deb so we have a lot of the same the same outlook in life and i think i'm a little more happy-go-lucky <laughs> <laughs> he would just attack me on that right now. As I but I tend to adapt well to everything. If things as little, uh, you know, I usually have my coffee with cream. If there's no cream, I was like, okay, I'll just have a black. And it's no big deal. Whereas he would go, what? I can't. I need my cream. <laughs> yeah. So 
I, I keep thinking about when you talked about Flipper, because my Saturday night routine with my, my late father, actually, love of my life, was we would watch Flipper, Beverly Hillbillies. I think I Dream of Jeannie was on at that time. We had our little routine of those shows. Of course, you mentioned Dick Van Dyke, the best like show I think ever written. I mean, other than Mary Tyler Moore, yeah. I, I don't know, they're a toss up. Do you have a favorite from yesteryear that you, that you, I mean, Dick Van Dyke is still, I think it's untouchable. And I think because it was, it was from all the last were from the characters and from real life. There was, I mean, they got into some wacky situations, but not like, you know, I love Lucy wacky, but some of the wacky things that happen in life. And I think Carl Reiner, who was a genius said to all the writers, Write about stuff from your life and just little nuggets, just little relationships between Rob and Laura. And yes. it stands up today. It does. Um, it does. Oh. One of, oh, there's uh, like just so many uh, <laughs> funny episodes. And uh, Dick Van Dyke, God bless him, still chugging along in mid-90s, early yeah, 90s. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He was very influent. He was someone I stole a lot from. <laughs> Is there anyone in the improv comedy world that impresses you? You're like at the heights. You're at the top. So I don't know where you go there, but I'm just wondering anyone who. There's so, I mean, I've been fortunate enough enough to work around the world with different improv companies. And there's hundreds of amazing improvisers who just don't have a TV show. And from people from the Second City ranks, people like Steve Carell, Stephen Mm -hmm. Colbert, Kristen Wiig, I think is amazing, uh, Kate McKinnon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, there's never a shortage of people out there. And what I love also with improv, people are constantly, you know, tweaking it and trying out new things. I have yes. two good friends here, Naomi Sneekus and uh, Matt Barham, who just did a thing called Scriptees, where they have local playwrights write the first two pages of a play. <sighs> they get it cold on the night, read it out loud, and then take it wow. on from there. That's- and it's great. Yeah, that is so cool. I wanted to talk to you about the show Last One Laughing Canada, in which 10 of Canada's best comedic talents are locked in a room together for six hours. Goals to be the last person laughing, person who keeps a straight face, longest wins a prize of $100,000 to the charity of your choice. And in this, you were in the company of such comedy icons as Dave Foley, Carolyn Ray, Mae Martin, Tom Green, and many more. It sounds like comedians dream to be in a room with so many legends. And yet, None of you are allowed to laugh, which is a comedian's nightmare. <laughs> uh, yeah, it goes against everything. You'll oh, what was that experience like? Was it, was it difficult to keep a straight face? And oh, just- it was like a CIA experiment. <laughs> I mean, you're six hours in a room. <laughs> and I mean, I knew most of those people. So there's that, you know, you have that friendly thing. And also when comedians get together, they start talking about their worst gigs and blah, blah, yes. blah. And it's, you know, you have some good laughs. And there were times where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm. I can't laugh. I'm not allowed to. So that was difficult. Like Carolyn Ray, who I love and adore, I said, you're not going to make it through the intro. You're just because you're so bubbly and joyous. (laughs) Was that not your favorite moment in any Carol Burnett show when her and Tim would literally like they'd be stifling the giggles and they would finally just say, forget it. And they would just, they would just break the fourth wall, the Brechtian fourth wall and just laugh their heads off and say, tag with it, right? Yeah, Brad and I met Tim Conway and Harvey Corman when we were on tour once and sort of had a, a drink with them and talked to them. And it, was just, oh. it was like a dream come true for both of us. Oh. They were both lovely, both lovely. That is so awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about Welcome Friend Association's Rainbow Camp, which I know you're a big supporter of? Yeah, Rainbow Camp is a camp up in Sault Ste. Marie that caters to the LGBTQ plus community. It gives them a safe place. Oh. 
There's basic camp activities, but there's also you know seminars and uh, people come in and talk about different issues. It's a great place, and Chris and Harry who run it, amazing people and so giving. <laughs> and this, yeah, people come from all around the world to come to this camp, and it, it's a wonderful camp. And as I say, a place where people uh, feel safe and can be with others and learn from others. And yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's, it also saddens me in a way that there needs to be a place like this as I opposed know. to just a place where everybody can go. I know. That's where um, we have to move to. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's certainly better than it's ever been in the history in the world, but it's still, we have a ways to go. Yeah. But yeah, just lovely people. Uh, if you know someone uh, in that community, I tell you, you could do no better than no to better go to Rainbow Camp. You've said that you welcome your role as a champion for transgender rights after speaking out in your support of your daughter, Kinley, and that you received immediate praise from like-minded people who are desperate for something like this. And I love also the story about how at the time, and I think this was six years ago, your mother-in-law and your mother both just said, well, yeah, we love and accept. We get this, of course. Mm-hmm. But what advice do you have for parents who might be listening, parents and grandparents on Zoomer, who are adjusting to their child transitioning? Any tips for families who are going through this transition? Because you guys did it so well. I would say just educate yourself as much as possible. Listen to your child. When our daughter Kinley came out, she immediately sent us like 15 videos mm-hmm. and pamphlets so we could. Uh, and she was very honest about what she was going through. And we also had to be honest with her about because, you know, at the beginning, pronouns were uh, difficult mm-hmm. because we had gone 25 years with a specific pronoun and now we're changing. Yeah. And it was like, you know, we also need time <laughs> to... Yes. You know, we're, t- we're totally supportive. We're totally behind you, but also we're going to make mistakes because we're old and we've we're gone old. through this for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but again, I've never used the word journey so much as I, I have in talking about this, but it has been an incredible journey. Kinley is uh, an amazing person. And uh, we're actually going to Spain in a couple of days for her 30th birthday. She's 33. Oh, but- <laughs> COVID, COVID, um, right? You know, something yeah. happened around the 30s where we couldn't yep, travel yep. anymore. Um, <laughs> but she, every time she leaves the house, we just go, isn't she delightful? <laughs> she really is uh, a, a lovely person, very empathetic, great with seniors and kids. And she's very open to talking about her experiences. And yeah, educate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the thing. Most of, pre- well, all prejudice comes out of true ignorance. And mm-hmm. the more you can learn about other yes. people, other cultures, Yes. It can only, it can only help. Absolutely. And love, right? It's all about love. Like it just, at the end of the day, that is absolutely what it is. So I want to ask you if there's a moment in your career, an epiphany, as it were, that stands out from all the rest. Oh, I can't really, I mean, there's been so many great moments and I mean, no one has been more shocked than I have about how well this has gone. <laughs> you know, when I started, you know, improv, it was like, this isn't a career. This is something I'm doing on the weekends to have fun. And if it wasn't for whose line, I, I certainly would not be doing this, for example. For me, okay, here's my here's my big moment. Don Cherry and Ron McLean used to every year do a fundraiser for Don's late wife's charity. And they would ask Deb and I to come to do an, an auction for various items to raise money. So there was this one year, Don comes over to me and goes, hey, Bobby Orr is at my table and he would really like you to join. Okay. So when I was growing up, it was a six-team league. Boston Bruins was my team. And, you know, when he scored the, the goal to win in overtime, I, I, I cried. And I, 
we were with a bunch of friends. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm with a bunch of friends. And Deb goes, are you an idiot? <laughs> I'll see those people anytime. So I went, I, I went over and, you know, I think I creeped him out. I said, you know, I have a doll of you and it's still in the packet. <laughs> Um, and he was just incredibly graceful. He said, my wife and I just love that show. We just think, and for me, that was kind of uh, that moment and many other moments where people came up and said, you know, my father just passed away, but we watched your show all the time. And oh. so when, when I see you, I'm, I think happy thoughts about my father. My God, I'm getting emotional about this, but moments like that, because I think, you know, I'm making a living, like walking like a chicken and doing whatever. <laughs> yeah. There are moments where, you know, people have come up and say, yeah, my parents were going through a divorce, but that show for half an hour, maybe forget anything. And I had, I had a friend who was going through chemo and he said uh, after you have the chemo you're in the waiting room and they would show whose line on the uh, so everybody oh kind of recovering would be have a couple of laughs and he said at one point i said you know i toured with him and they go yeah right he said you don't know what it's like to be dissed by a group of cancer patients <laughs> 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 but, yeah i've been very fortunate that this show has touched people in ways that I was never aware of when I, I started out. And I, I hope it continues to do so. I know it will. So there's a question we ask everyone at the end of the show. So of course, I'm going to ask it to you. What is bliss for Colin Mockery? Um, for me, bliss is uh, living the life I want to live. I'm doing a job that I, I look forward to doing every day. But I also have a home I look forward to going back to after that and being with being able to spend time with my wife and, and daughter, for me, that's bliss. The I know we're not supposed to speak well of pandemics, but this <laughs> pandemic was incredibly good for me because it reminded me what a good thing I have at home because I hadn't been at home for that long a period in like yes. 20 years. And I realized, hey, we still like each other. We still love each other a lot. I still think she's the bee's knees, as we used to say in the wow. 20s. And I need to find a way to get more of a balance because this part of my life is much more important than the work part. Are you planning any trips back to Scotland? Oh, yeah. We're always open to going back because I, I love it there. I mean, Edinburgh is what, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I love the people. They're morbid in many ways, but they have a good sense of humor. Yeah, there's just, and they're funny. There are funny people, the Scots, and so much beauty in the Highlands. And when I go back there, I, I go, oh, yeah, I this is a place I could, I belong. I, I could easily live here. Yeah, I could never get enough of it. Uh, we have no definite plans right now, but definitely we're, we're going to be heading back. I have to tell you, it's it's truly been an honor to have you here. I want to thank you oh, thank so you. much for this wonderful, wonderful hour. Oh, Judy, it's been lovely uh, talking to you. Thank you. Thank you as well. To follow Colin Mockery on Instagram, all you have to do is go to at Colin Mockery 7591. And to get tickets to see Colin Mockery and Brad Sherwood live in Scared Scriptless, all you have to do is go to colinandbradshow.com. And for tickets to see Hipprov with Colin and hypnotist Assad, all you have to do is go to hipprov.com. Each week, we spotlight a fabulous person like Colin Mockery. We also love to feature singers and musicians on the show. So if you're an artist, please reach out to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. 
In Bliss News, we're so excited to announce that the Harold Green Jewish Theater Company is producing a play direct from Israel called Knock Knock. It's actually a one-man show. And the Harold Green had programmed this play prior to COVID, but now this piece of theater is more relevant than ever. Starting tonight on Saturday, October 21st, this one-man show plays until Sunday, October 29th at the Greenwind Theater in the Meridian Arts Center. Written and starring Israeli actor Neve Patel, the play is a poignant, vivid, and detailed story of familial relationships. Please attend this important work and know that 100% of all ticket sales will go to Israel. To order tickets, you can go to their website, www.hgjewishtheater.com, or call the box office at 416-366-7723. $20 rush seats are available for every performance. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Colin Mockery, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitsiello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Lee Brack reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.